Tandem Nomads, episode 18. It was just a matter of competing with the other organization they were giving to and convince them that ours was unique, urgent, and impactful. So if they gave to us, they would be improving their situation as a philanthropic organization. Welcome to Tandem Nomads, the podcast show designed to help expat partners turn their career challenges into great opportunities and become global entrepreneurs. Every other Tuesday, you will find great inspiration and practical tips to build a portable and successful business. To download your free guidebook on the six steps to build a successful portable business, go to tandemnomads.com. Hello, Nomad Nation. This is Emel Deregui. Today's episode is quite special because we're going to talk about uh, how to grow your NGO. I know that a lot of you are very involved in charities, but also started your own NGOs and might be struggling with funding this NGO and running it and maybe making it sustainable on the wrong run. So this is why I brought to you today an expert on the matter, and his name is Derry Deringer. So Derry, thank you for being here, and are you ready for the ride? <laughs> Pleasure to be here, Amel, and thanks so much for having me here. Fantastic. So uh, Nomad Nation, Derry uh, Deringer is a certified fundraising executive. He built most of his career working for NGOs such as uh, the United Nations Food Program. And in 2012, he founded his company, Deringer Consulting, that helps small to medium-sized nonprofits improve their fundraising performance and leadership. So, Derry, this is a very short overview of what you do and a little bit of who you are. Could you tell us more about uh, what's happening in your world, a little bit more about you personally, and then we'll kick it off. Sure. So, I actually started my career um, on the business side doing sales and and management uh, for about 10 years. And um, I traveled abroad for about a year, year and a half. And while I was in um, Ecuador, Bolivia, and Peru in some of the, the poorest um, areas and most vulnerable populations, um, I had kind of a paradigm shift. And it was at that time that I decided to um, use my sales and management skills um, in the public sector. And that led me to working for the UN World Food Program and then fundraising in that arena and then started my own, my own consulting business uh, six years ago. At the end of the day, Amel, my my mission is to teach nonprofits how to fish, if you will, around fundraising, um, to to give them the tools to to not need me anymore to be able to do it on their own, and that um, includes working with the board of directors, um, the executive leadership, the development team, and in many cases the organization overall. Um, such as with strategic planning to build a culture of philanthropy. It's a long-term um, mission and <clears throat> often my projects can be a year, year and a half um, to really build in that culture of philanthropy and give them the practical tools to be able to do fundraising effectively. This is amazing. This is really great. And you know, I have to say to Nomad Nation, I met um, uh, Derry last week when we were both sitting at the same panel in DC in the World Bank and FME and um, IMF, sorry, in English, <laughs> FME is in French. <laughs> and so the, the, the World um, the Financial Institution and World Bank and IDB. So um, 
it was kind of interesting because we were there sitting together. This is how we got to know each other, sharing our experiences with entrepreneurship and marketing. And this is how we got to meet. And I'm really pleased that we had this chance together. Um, so what I'm interested in is knowing a little bit about you personally, maybe, but also sure. tell us how you got into starting your own business. Because I think what you just introduced to us is this amazing, uh, you know, link that you build between uh, your skills and finding your passion and you discovered that you really wanted to do something meaningful when you went to Peru um, and, and you managed to, to get it together. But it's another mm -hmm. thing to work as an employee in instit uh, uh, public institutions. It's, a, it's one thing to then start the risk of your own business in such a niche. So right. can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, at the end of the day, I, I realized that starting my own business was the path for me when I could answer kind of three main questions. Um, is there a need for the service I envision? Um, can I do the work and do I have knowledge in that area? Um, you know, and then are people, um, are people wanting my services in terms of, can they afford and afford the service. And those were the three main areas. And I, at that point I've said, you know what, I have enough to be able to, to, to open up a shop <clears throat> at the end of the day. I, I, I love working with different clients. I love the variety. And I felt that, um, this allows me to use I actually wear four or five different hats as a consultant. Um, and, and I think entrepreneurs can really relate to this if you're an independent or a small shop or you're the, 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 the founder, you obviously have to be dynamic. And I might come into a situation and I might wear the coach's hat, the facilitator's hat, the project manager hat, the sales manager hat, all in one project because needs vary and I have to be able to flex in order to be able to provide the client what they need, when they need it, and get results. Yeah, this is great. This, but was it scary for you to just start the, and take that risk? I, I know you mentioned the story with your wife, and we talk a lot in Tandem Nomads, this partnership that we have to build, an agreement we have to build when one of the two takes that risk to start their own business. Could you share a little bit about that? Sure. <clears throat> my first client was my wife um, because I knew that she needed to be um, sold on it before I could um, move forward in a, in a comfortable fashion. So I, I had looked at the numbers financially and I, I had, I had nine months to be able to build up enough clients and a pipeline, um, to, to be able to make it sustainable. Luckily I got some clients in the first three or four months. Um, independent consulting is peaks and valleys. So, you know, that's been, you know, that's been the case, you know, great year and, and okay year. But at the end of the day, um, it's been, you know, up and to the right in terms of growth and it's been sustainable for me. That's great. So your wife just gave you that, said you have nine months and, and it worked out. <laughs> that's not too bad to set up a deadline somehow. Well, I basically knew what my commitments were within the family budget and I knew what savings I had. And so I said, Nothing in terms of finances in our family situation is going to change. I'm starting a business, but nothing else is going to change. You're still going to have my commitment as if I was a salaried employee. And that, that was where the nine months would come in. <laughs> so, so, fantastic. So this is really great because the reason I wanted to talk about this is that, first of all, for that partnership to have that conversation in the couple, to, to because 
the whole family goes into this journey when one of one of the two starts a business and second to to know your figures to know your numbers and and decide how many clients you need in what time of uh, what time lapse and that's very helpful i think that was a great strategic move that you made to just calculate what you need to get in order to know if you can be sustainable with your business just wanted to share that i thought it was interesting absolutely yeah. actually i have a one burning thing to Say before we move Please. on to the next thing. Yeah. And, and, and it was the third thing that I forgot about what got me into consulting. It was yeah. you have to enjoy the work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this relates to being a business owner and diving in. Your work and your personal life and your spiritual life and who you are as a person, they're all intertwined. So it's not possible to do your work and then have your other parts of your life. So it's very important that you involve your spouse, you involve your family, and that you take a complete person and whole life point of view when you go into business. Yeah, definitely. So that's a very good point. So what if we go into NGOs? Sure, sure. <laughs> so that's the thing. You know, it's one thing to start a business because there are numbers. But I think when we have an NGO, there's also numbers. I mean, we might not gain money out of it. But there's time involvement and there is a results expected. And, and I think even if it's a nonprofit organization that we're building, we need to have some performance in order to be able to sustain that NGO and continue it. And and this is why we have this. We have you here. I'm very happy to have you here to share your expertise in the mm -hmm. in the matter. So, could you try to summarize a little bit before we go into details? You know, what are the different ways an NGO can get funds? Because at the end of the day, that's what we're going to focus on today. Because what NGOs need most is money to be able to run their projects. So, right. can you summarize them a little bit, and then we can go in details for for each type of funding. sure. Um, so when, when we're talking about philanthropy, we're talking about people um, or organizations giving contributions. Um, there's two sides of it. There's the art and then there's the, the science. Um, so we'll be hitting on both of those, but you have to do the numbers and the emotions and the relationship side both well. Um, in order to raise money from a non, you know, for a nonprofit to raise money, you have these audiences. You have the individuals businesses, private foundations, government, and what I'll call organizations like Lions Club or Rotary, et cetera. You can also add a fee for service in there um, if you want, but those are the main groups. So four groups, individuals, private companies and organizations, government and associations. Um, private foundations and organizations. Foundations. I would say I would say five groups: individuals, okay. businesses, foundations, government, and organizations. All, right. all other organizations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, th those are the different donor audiences, and how they decide to make contributions and relate to your organization is the reason I have them broken out into those groups. Okay, that's a great way to start. And then what are the type of actually uh, of fundings you can get from these people? Because there's so many different ways you can get money out of these organizations. Um, mm -hmm. can, can you explain a little bit about that? Sure. So if, if you look at individual giving, I usually look at it in terms of um, it, it's roughly the size of their contribution, but also um, why the donor decides to give. So in individual giving, you have an annual fund which is your, your annual direct mail and, and contributions. Um, and that you know is online and offline through the mail. Major gifts, which are the large gifts that take more of the relationship building. Um, 
And then you have planned gifts, which are typically bequests and estate planned gifts. Um, you know, th- those are the, the the real main ones. Okay. So, uh, what are the? Can you explain what is called? Ma- I think that's a very technical term in the fundraising. Sure. Uh, can you explain what a main gift is and a and a planned gift? Oh, like an annual gift versus a major yeah. gift. I think for for those who are not used to sure. fundraising, they might not know what it entitles and how sure. it works. So an annual gift is is your any size low low dollar gift from like a dollar to maybe it's five hundred dollars or a thousand or five thousand dollars, but a major gift a, an organization defines you know when we have a level that's going to require a special relationship, you know. So small organizations it may be five hundred or a thousand dollars. Large organizations it could be twenty five thousand dollars, and those major gift donors receive special. Um, interactive uh, communications, one-on-one relationships, and uh, just more deep into the relationship around their gift, obviously, because it's a bigger gift that they give. But you're still working to get those major gift donors giving every year or making a multi-year commitment. Okay. So how would you advise to to be, to, what are your tips to be able to get those gifts? How do you get uh, a donor to convince them to, to, to donate? Mm-hmm. Very good question, Amel. How do you, you know, how do you move a donor to or person to give? Well, um, there's there's a couple of big things you want to pay attention to. Um, there are people that give philanthropically as part of who they are, and and then there are others that that don't. That don't. Um, if you're talking about let's let's suppose we're talking about major gift donors or planned gift donors, you're going to want to know who the people are that give philanthropically already, because then you're halfway there. Because we're talking about making a philanthropic gift to your organization. Another big piece is understanding from them, and and in many cases, it's just talking to them and asking them um, in person or through social media or other communications what they care about. So if you have somebody that gives philanthropically to homeless shelters or to international humanitarian relief, and you do that work, you're then closer to a match. Um, after that, you know, it's a matter of um, them understanding how you are unique as an organization, what your clear need is, and a compelling ask to, for them to give. Yeah. And I kind of break it down into identification. This this is the the, the donor cycle. It's identifying and researching the the person, cultivating them to get the information about what they care about and who they are, and sharing about what who you are and how you're unique. Making an ask, making a solicitation, and then which is often overlooked, which is extremely important, which is stewardship, and that is thanking, recognizing, and appreciating the donor when they've made a contribution. Yeah, that's a very good, I, I like the way you broke it down. This is really, really great because it really helps. I think no matter if you're having an NGO, ask yourself, what are you doing in each phase of that cycle? And are you really like taking the time to identify who they are, figuring out what they're interested in, then making the ask. And then very important, like you said, you know, uh, recognizing continuously their donation and giving them that platform because I mean recognition is a big part and, and gratitude also in life in general is a big part of, of success so uh, but let's talk about that third point when you make the ask do you have any practical tips on how to make that ask well 
<clears throat> how you make the ask is going to depend on the size of the potential gift. Mm-hmm. So if if it's a thousand dollars or higher, um, you're going to want to customize that ask as much as you can. If they're across the city or the block from you, you can ask them and you're going to want to try to get them in person. Um, if they're across the country, it might be a more thought out um, with more investment in a direct mail piece customized for that audience. Mm-hmm. So it's it's going to vary. Well, is there like a sales pitch or a, that you would recommend? Is there anything in the content of the ask? Um, yeah. What are yes. the arguments that right. like, you know, we should bring up? So to, to, to convince it's a sales at the end. So, yeah. So suppose Amel, you, you and I are, you and I are meeting. Okay. And I've done all my work ahead of time to, to make an ask. Um, <clears throat> there's a couple elements to that. So I'm going to want to try to keep this meeting to a half hour or 40 minutes. Um, it, it's better if there's two people with, by group versus just myself, because you can play off of each other. But I, I think how it would go is um, some some small talk and a conversation at the beginning, you know, but you don't want to go more than five minutes um, in that. And then someone will um, tell a story or engage in a, a in an anecdote that that draws in the the person to the work and to what they care about and connects them emotionally to what's happening. Um, and that might be five or 10 minutes. Okay. And then someone will, <clears throat> will, will ask the person across from them to make a contribution. And it might be something like this, you know, Amel, um, we, we've had these conversations about how passionate you are for the poor and vulnerable populations um, in, in Eastern Europe. And um, we, we're um, very much embedded in that community. And right now is a crucial time for us to raise $100,000 for this campaign uh, because there's a window of opportunity here um, that we need to capture on. And so um, we, we would love if you would be able to consider a contribution of $5,000 towards this campaign. Fantastic. So you just ask it while relating it to what you said before, their interest. Um, and in their case, what, what type of topics they're interested in investing, investing so-called in it. Um, but is there like, do you promise like a result to that donation? Do you? Mm-hmm. Good, good, of- good question. So <clears throat> with, with major gifts, for example, um, I recommend a, a case for support. So it's a document that will lay out, if you will, what the campaign is, how the funding would be spent, and what the impact of your gift would be. So we've we've done that work ahead of time before we go to meet with you and others. And so a lot of times people will ask, you know, how is the gift going to be spent? What's going to be the result? So I'm prepared to tell you, well, Amel, um, you know, your $5,000 will will end up feeding and providing ham- humanitarian aid to a thousand people in that uh, community. And that will prevent them from being displaced um, and, and will help us to, to nourish the families that need it right now. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, otherwise they wouldn't have these supplies. 
what, what about their personal, honestly, the world, it's still a real world where a lot of companies do invest in, 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 in NGOs and everything, but they do do it with expecting to have some kind of exposure and things like that. So do you bring mm -hmm. that in or? So, so uh, um, a business donor is going to be a different set of interests and, um, and, and criteria than an individual donor. So the example you were giving were big individual donors. For individuals, there's, there's more of an emotional connection and a personal. Now on the, on the business side <clears throat> for this campaign, for example, um, I, I'm going to, on my terms, but with collaboration from the business donor audience, understand what kind of exposure, what kind of benefits, Um, what kind of recognition, you know, is there, are there going to be employees involved? What, what are there going to be the recognition benefits um, that they can engage in? And, and I'm going to develop that criteria. So I'll know that going in. And again, if it's for the business side, it's a business case of support that lays out those what's in it for me, for the, for the business community. Yeah, that's, that's great. So I, what about for, you know, in my, I know of a few types Of funding, there's the grants, which is government funding. Like you said, you divided it by audience. But if you see it the other way, you have the grants, you have the crowdfunding, you have uh, the charity events, um, and there's so many different creative ways to try to to um, get funds. But is there like certain ways that you you would recommend that are more appropriate to certain situations do you have, yes have you developed such a grid or something like that that would help uh the audience here realize okay i'm in this situation this is the type of grant i should look for or this is the type of donation mm -hmm. i would look uh, i should mm -hmm. look for well that, that's a very good question so you know some some organizations based on the mission and um where they are physically and where their donors are physically will be um better off focusing on individuals. And then there are some that based on their work would be better off working with institutions like governments and foundations. Um, so th that, that's a conversation in itself is looking at your mission, what other peer organizations do for fundraising um, and getting a sense for where your sweet spot is. Let's suppose that you realize that you're an NGO and you want to raise money um, from people that, aren't in your city. Maybe they're all around the world. Okay. Um, and it's individuals, like I said, you would likely then look towards things like social media, crowdsourcing, um, and online tools to an email, which is a very powerful, sometimes underused, um, um, vehicle, but you would use those tools to, um, reach out to your, your audiences. Then You know, a lot of people think that the vehicle is going to raise the money, but that's not the case. Then you have to really um, look at how you're going to be um, messaging the need, um, what's going to be the, the cultivation and follow-up mechanism once you make your communications, what's going to be the specific ask and how often. And then again, back to very important, once somebody makes a gift, no matter what amount, um, how are you going to steward that gift? Yeah, that's a very good point, how, how to do that. So 
asking again, it goes back to what you said, what are their interests and how can we convince them according to what they're interested in through our marketing campaign, et cetera. I know that a lot of um, expat spouses, as we're talking here of expat spouses, um, uh, tandem nomads in general, are very involved in volunteering and, and also creating great NGOs and projects. And one of the one of the ways they do fundraising is in general with charity and events. And that's the most common way. So I know that is a great model for raising funds by one, getting selling tickets to the event. But I know that most of the time it's the sponsorship that really brings the extra money to make a bit of profit for the organization because the event itself costs money. So I think it's very important to know your costs for that event, but how would you recommend to be convincing and to do uh, to 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 be able to approach sponsors for this type of charity event right. and, and fundraising this kind of event that that's a good question if i may um i would like to address how to be effective in event sponsorship but also talk about event fundraising overall sure um uh, events um <clears throat> imagine your ngo works every day of the year um for multiple years in building a base of supporters. And once you get a gift from this person you or, or company, you want to try to have them give again the next year. And the more they give consistently, the more committed they are, the more likely they are to be a loyal lifetime donor. Mm-hmm. And then there are things you can do to upgrade those gifts. So any event that you do, um, if it's once a year or three times a year, use the event as a means as much as you use it as an ends to fundraise. In other words, if you ask during that event, what kind of follow-up do you do to thank them for coming to get their feedback and then engage them in something else that would lead to another gift? Um, A lot of times people will do fundraising events and then they will not follow up. And there's been, there's a lot of lost opportunity there. Mm -hmm. Um, So around, around corporate sponsorship, um, it really goes into understanding what companies want from event sponsorship that they'll tell you um, if you talk to them and you include them in the process as you formulate your package, which I think doesn't happen enough is, is enrolling those folks in a collaboration. If you start with the donor and build out from there based on what's feasible, um, I think you'll have a winning combination uh, in terms of raising sponsorship. Mm-hmm. So one thing you said that's interesting for me, and I think it 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 goes a lot with the marketing strategy that we will talk a little bit about. But you know that if you're organizing a fundraising event, it's not only about the event; it's about building the fellowship, the following along the year around that event. It's not only about the event, but creating that momentum along the year that you're preparing that event. So that's in terms of marketing, it's very important to keep communicating about that event and make it interesting so that the sponsors can find a real interest in also, um, you know, donating or, or like you say, giving a gift to, to that, uh, supporting that event. So I think that's a good, good tip. Think about how that event can be also your marketing tool to talk about what you're doing as the end, the end of your event is not the event. It's actually what it is for. And I think Absolutely. That, that's very important. And the other thing you mentioned, and you keep mentioning, I think that's really important is to continue the relationship with the donors 
keep that relationship year after year. And it's not only once they donate the money, that relationship has to continue, follow up. Uh, I think they're probably, the clients might be those who are benefiting the cause you're working for. But at the end of the day, uh, those who are providing the funds are the donors. So it's important to put them at the center also of your strategy as an NGO. That, that's correct. If, if there were actually two indicators, because you mentioned the numbers and performance and how do you measure, if there were two very easy ways to see that you're on the right track, I would say thanking your donors is one. Matter of fact, I wouldn't be shy about calling individually every single donor that gives to say thank you. Mm-hmm. And the second would be, how are you doing in terms of donor retention? Donor retention is if you had 100 donors give last year, how many of those gave the next year? And if it's 80, it's 80% retention rate. Um, the average in the industry in the US is right around 50%. Now, if you spend a lot of time trying to get new donors, which costs a lot more money to get than, than, uh, than other old donors, it doesn't seem logical to have such a, such a low rate. So try to get your retention rate up to... 70% or higher, and you've got a winning combination. Oh, that's really, really good because the retention, which means how many people who have invested or how many companies come back to you, and that's the smart thing to do. You don't want to put the same effort year after year to get your first-time donors. You want to base your, your funds on recurring donors, and that's the retention rate. So keeping that relationship with assure that people would come back and, and donate year after year. So it's very important also, I guess, to figuring out their feedback. I think that's another thing to thank them, but also make sure to have a bit of feedback from their side and how is that serving their interests in donating, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Very good points, Amal. <laughs> You're becoming an expert fundraiser. Uh, as we speak. <laughs> well, I've been involved in some too, so maybe that's why. <laughs> so could you actually give us more of a practical example of a project you worked for so that we can have a little bit of context and examples that we could use to continue? Uh, sure. So um, um, an international charity um, called Roots of Peace um, that was doing demining in war-torn countries such as Iraq and Vietnam and Cambodia. Um, you know, we, we, we had a couple of things. One is we realized that institutions such as foundations, private foundations and corporate foundations were interested in this issue based on um, um, the political environment and um, population and government perception. So we identified institution as the, as the way to go with, with this particular project and because it was across the world. So we went out and we identified the, 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 the top 50. Um, we talked to them. We, we shared two pages, very clear information about the project. We asked them what would be important to them in terms of their support. Um, and once we had that, we, we went out and, and, and asked if they would be willing to support it. We actually asked a handful of them that we had been able to cultivate by phone. And we asked about their interest on the phone and it was at that point that they said, yes, we would, we would like to see a proposal. And then that's when the proposal process started versus, um, you know, looking online on the website and then submitting an LOI or a proposal without having talked to somebody and develop that relationship ahead of time. Very important, you know, have that conversation, pick up the phone, less and less people 
just pick up the phone and I think and conversation Absolutely. like you and me right now can go a long way. Um, and I think we have a tendency to forget that, that the voice to voice communication works because that's where you create a connection. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's great. So is there, is, so these donors were, were government or were private donors or what kind of. They, they were a mix of, of private foundations, um, like the, the Ford Foundation and Rockefeller Foundation, okay. MacArthur Foundation, and corporate foundations. Okay, so um, they're all exist to donate, actually. They, these are um, organizations that traditionally give grants to, to issues that, that you can find out about. It was just a matter of competing with the other organization they were giving to and convince them that ours was unique urgent and impactful. So if they gave to us, they would be improving their situation as a philanthropic organization. I like that you brought that up, competition. That's a key word because even NGOs have to deal with competition. I know, for instance, here in New York, the time of Christmas is the time where I was telling some of the NGOs I was helping, that's the wrong time to ask for money because that's the time where every NGO is reaching out for the goodwill of people because it's Christmas time, uh, even at the higher corporate level. And, and so um, do you have some tips about dealing with competition? Well, you know, it, 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 it's actually counterintuitive um, when you think about when to make an ask. But um, if you look at the trends and you look at the industry, about 80% of people, individuals, let's talk about for a second, give during Christmas time. Mm -hmm. So do you want to ride that big wave of giving and be, be part of that big wave? Or do you want to take your chances outside of that? And, and I would actually um, say it's good to ask during the seasons because of that wave of giving, but it gets to your exact question, which is how do you set yourself apart with the competition? Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think it, I think the way you deal with your competition is a couple ways. One, people that do their homework and listen to what they learn from that homework win. So if you, if you talk to your audience about what it is they need, um, you, you simply give them what they need. You communicate it clearly within the holiday giving season um, to ride that wave. And then I think you maximize your chances of getting the return uh, versus people going somewhere else um, down the street. Yeah. So I want to go into that because this is really interesting. How to use, you know, you can deal with competition by either facing it and knowing that you're going to be competitive with the right argument, or you try to be more creative about it. And the Christmas, it's interesting that you bring that up because we can debate about it, but I think it goes hand in hand with what you said of preparing also, for for instance, Christmas. In this case, uh, it was so many NGOs pitching during Christmas, like few a month Absolutely. before. And that's, I think, if you want to be effective for Christmas time, it's better to start the relationship way ahead. So, the, and then promise for the big event or the big moment for them to shine during Christmas. Um, I don't know what you think about that, but I think starting the relationship during Christmas is wrong. Um, but, or shortly before when everybody does it, but it's much better to start much earlier to prepare the Christmas season. Absolutely. You you hit the the nail on the head. Christmas time is not going to bring in the gift for you. Um, This relationship and the work has to happen um, all year round 
and then you use Christmas as as one of the tools. But you're exactly right. If organizations think that they can start the relationship at Christmas time and then make an ask during that time, yes, they are probably going to get overlooked to other organizations who have been doing it and cultivating and giving in the time other than Christmas. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah. So that's, it, that's really interesting because I think that's a struggle that I see a lot. Like when do you start asking and what do, how do you ask and how you deal with competition? And I think the key message mm. here is all about relationship. Know exactly who are the people who are potentially interested in donating, then figuring out what they're interested in as a counterpart. It can be exposure, it can be simple interest, but it has to make sense for that donor and then build that relationship on the long term not only to get your first donation but also to keep them coming back so i think those are some three some key messages here that we've been already yeah yeah, you make a really i mean like the question is like when do you ask you know and and you know that's a that's a very good question and um if if many folks in the audience are small ngos um, and suppose they have, based on personal relationships and past donors, they have, you know, say 50 to, to 250 donors, both individuals, individuals and organizations. My, my advice would be to um, think about throughout the year what's manageable in terms of um, engaging your audience to tell them the impact you're making, to show your pre- your appreciation for their support, even if it's volu- if it's volunteering and they're not giving, or it's giving and not volunteering, or it's being part of a campaign in another way, um, somehow keeping them engaged without asking them for money. And then, but if you do make an ask, um, I would do it in the period between early November and the last day of the year. Interesting. So, for example, my current client I'm working with. Um, you know, they might do, they'll do a direct mail campaign in early November. And this is by mail. And then they would send to, to tracer emails. So these are, these are emails that are very much similar to the direct mail piece, but for the online audience. Um, so one would be before Thanksgiving and one would be early December. But then the last three days of the year, 29th, 30th, and 31st, we'll each have an on an email appeal mm. to get that last minute gift in. So that's what I mean. They they their their campaign at the end of the year stretches from early November to the last day of the year. <clears throat> if you're gonna ask one time a year and then use the other time to engage your audience, um, that ask I would say is near the year end because of that big wave of of philanthropic minded support that that everybody's is taking. That's really interesting. Thanks for that insight because I do think it's a, yeah, it's a long-term plan that you have to build. You have to think ahead of time. When am I going to start engaging? And I think if we had to summarize it is, first of all, like you said, what message am I going to share to get them to donate? Uh, when I'm going to start building a relationship and when am I going to make that ask? I think that's a very good good uh, question and you gave some good indications here of a good timing uh for instance here you show that it was nearly two months campaign that you have to continuously do it's an intense two months of campaign with mailing with in your case direct mail is there other tools you use to promote and engage and make an ask um well i i, I would say um th- there's actually an easy formula um 
that you can use when when you're talking to folks. Um, usually, in NGOs will talk about what they do, and they will leave to the end why they do it. Flip that and 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 talk about the why um, first, and then the what, which is the strategy and the implementation, and then the last is the how, which is the call to action and how you can help. But starting with the why in terms of what is the issue, how are you the one that's addressing it effectively and why this issue should be important to you, that all that stuff in the why is, is very, very important and often overlooked yeah. in, in, in this engagement. This is great. Yeah. So three, start, start with the why, then the uh, what. what, and then the how. That's right. Why is the 30,000 foot view, the purpose, why we're here and what's unique about it. The what is the say 14,000 foot view and the, the strategy and the, the programs that we're doing to address the issue, but very high level. We're not going to want to get in the weeds here. And then the how is how you can help the call to action. That's great. You've been sharing some great insights here. So before we say goodbye, I'd love to know if there's any online tools you recommend for fundraising. Um, for sure. To, yeah. Well, I've, I've got some, I've got three um, online tools and blogs and then some book recommendations. Do you want me just to go down the list? Yes, please. Let's do that. Okay. And, and there, are, there are a lot out there. So if you find ones that aren't on this list that resonate with you, by all means, um, use it. Um, I, I like Gail Perry, uh, Fired Up Fundraising, uh, as a blog. Um, I also like uh, Pamela Grow, uh, PamelaGrow.com. It's P-A-M-E-L-A-G-R-O-W. Um, and then um, theagitator.net. So these are three blogs. The, these are three yep, blogs and websites um, that, that have regular content about fundraising advice. Fantastic. Okay. Um, books. Um, I like um, Relationship Fundraising um, by Ken Burnett, B-U-R-N-E-T-T. Um, I like um, uh, Penelope Burke. Her books are very good. She's got one, a, a good good first one to start with is donor-centered fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of writing for fundraising and, and nonprofits, um, a book by Tom Ahern, A-H-E-R-N, called How to Write Fundraising Material. Um, and lastly, if, if you're interested in direct mail and learning about um, that area, um, Mal Warwick, um, M-A-L-W-A-R-C-K, uh, excuse me, W-A-R-W-I-C-K is good for that. So those are some resources. Wow. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. So Nomad Nation, you're going to find the list of all these great resources that uh, they recommended here in the webpage of this episode. So don't hesitate to go there. Um, so what is the best way to find you, uh, Derry, if um, we need your help and consulting? Absolutely. Uh, so my website is DerringerConsulting.com. And you can also find me on, on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure doing this with you, Derry. <laughs> Great pleasure. Thanks so much, Amel. Thank you. Nomad Nation, I hope that you enjoyed the great insights of our guest today. If you did, please make sure to share it with your friends. See you at the next episode and stay tuned to turn your challenges into great opportunities.